and welcome to episode nine of Slice of Vision, the end of accounting. Joined, as always, by Frankie. Hi, Frankie. Hi, good to see you, Nigel. Today's guest is Dr. Barak Lev, recently retired from NYU, famous internationally for a book under the same title as this podcast episode. Uh, welcome, Dr. Lev. Thank you very much for joining us this afternoon. Yeah, happy to be here. Hi, Dr. Lev. Thank you again for joining us on Cypher Vision. As an economics graduate myself, I'm really excited that you could join us today. And I think our listeners are going to get a real treat by hearing a different perspective from you. So let's hear a little bit about your background. I think our listeners would appreciate hearing your career to date and congratulations on your retirement, but also how you came across intangible assets and how that's formed and shaped some of your career and thinking. So it, uh, about uh, 25 years ago, I was a professor at the University of California, Berkeley, both in the business school and in the law school. But I was also a partner in a consulting firm. I was in charge of uh, finance, accounting, and particularly valuations of companies for mergers and acquisitions, all kinds of uh, litigations. And when I valued companies, particularly new type of companies at the time, like cellular phone companies, biotech companies, as an accountant, I started with the financial reports and it, it immediately became clear to me that the financial reports are not just useless for valuation, but they are actually misleading. For example, cellular phone companies, the more successful they were, they invested in customer acquisition cost, which is an expense in accounting until today. So the more successful they were in building the franchise, they showed high, larger losses in this case. So it became clear to me that accounting is useless. I looked at the balance sheet and it reminded me of the old song, where have all the flowers gone? I asked myself, where have all the assets gone? Where are the patents? Where is the IT? Where are human resources? Nowhere to be seen. And that's because intangibles are expense in accounting. They basically disappear after they are expense. So I got interested in the whole area of intangibles very early, I must say. And I became a guru of intangibles. People would present me as Baruch Lev, the guru of intangibles, and I, I quite liked it until I heard that someone said that reporters like the term guru because charlatan is hard to spell. Then I asked people, you know, stop presenting me as guru, but that's how I got to intangibles. Well, I, I love that story. And I think that's very amusing around the charlatan uh, comment. Thinking about uh, the book that you wrote, The End of Accounting with Fen Gu, what would you say would be the main thesis that you would want to talk about from that book? The book deals with financial information that is routinely disclosed by uh, companies either quarterly, like the United States, semi-annually in the UK, and other countries, and annually, of course. And this is supposed to be the information in those reports, which are by now voluminous, sometimes 250, 300-page report. The information is supposed to be the backbone of the data that investors are using. That's why securities laws in the United States, going back to the 30s, mandated disclosure by managers. 
And we show empirically in the book, it's not a book about suppositions and, and thoughts. We have eight consecutive chapters of empirical stuff, basically on all publicly traded companies, showing from several directions, uh, different venues, showing that the value of information, the relevance to investors of the information in financial report, despite the fact that they keep getting larger and larger, the value information decreases drastically almost to nothing today. Value information in terms of making, of course, uh, investment decisions. And this decrease, we have all kinds of nice graphs there in the book, this decrease correlates very nicely negatively with the increase of intangible assets. So we have a graph that shows the increase of investment of companies in intangible assets, and we have the decrease in the value of financial report information. It's, it's almost perfect negative correlation. I just want to give two examples to your listeners uh, to make it somewhat more concrete. In the United States in 2019, which is the last good year before COVID, mm-hmm. Corona came in, it was a boom year economically. But if you look at the, uh, the annual reports, the, the financial statements, the balance sheet, the income statement of companies, 50%, full one half of all U.S. companies reported losses. And if you focused on high-tech and science-based companies, those companies that are rich in patents, for example, 70% of those reported losses. So how can it be that one of the best economic years for the U.S. economy, 70% of the companies report losses? It just shows that the financial reports, particularly the income statement, is completely meaningless. And that's mainly because of this massive expensing of all investments in R&D, patents, in IT. Today, if you look, for example, at the balance sheet of Pfizer, with uh, its incredible income from uh, the COVID vaccine, in this case, you would see on the balance sheet all kinds of nonsense. You would see cash that Pfizer has, You would see a few office buildings that uh, they have, some irrelevant inventory that they have, but you won't see the patents, all the drugs, and particularly on the new drugs on the vaccine. I mean, this is absurd that in the 21st century, companies will provide investors with such balance sheets, with with such lists of assets. So that's what, what we have in the book, The End of Accounting. It really shocked most readers, and it has incredible longevity. Uh, summer of 2020, a year ago, Forbes magazine listed our books as a must-read for CFOs. And when my co-author told me about this, uh, I said, it's impossible. Four years after it was published, it's still a must read. So I want to go and just ask you a couple of quick fire questions about topics that really surprised me when I first engaged with them, uh, like R&D. 
a single number in reports and accounts, leave aside where it is in the accounts, it's a single number. Do you think there's progress being made to unpack the R number, which I always regard to be the foundational research, from the D number, which is possibly more incremental? Absolutely not. By the way, R&D is the only investment in intangibles that at least is disclosed by companies. It is expensed in the income statement, but it is disclosed. All others, it's really a scandal, all others, heavier investment in uh, intangibles, like investment in information technology, for example, they are all lumped in big Expense item like sales, general administrative expenses, cost of sales. So investors, at least with respect to R&D, they have some total. With respect to the other, they are complete in the darkness. Now, to your particular question, the the difference between the R and the D is crucial in terms of risk. The R, the research, the, the, the search for new technology is, of course, much riskier than development. But the returns are also uh, higher. It's very important if uh, companies change the mix over time, if they have a different mix, their close competitors. So you are perfectly right to ask about uh, that. My answer, unfortunately, is that there is no company that I know of provides this distinction, and it's not required. And if I can just ask the follow-on question, I suspect it's going to get a similar response in relation to acquired intellectual property between what we call organic IP, IP which is generated by the company as opposed to stuff they might buy in. They have a different treatment in the accounts. Is there any insight that you can share with our listeners about how we've come to that? What seems to be slightly counterintuitive to me. That's another very important point, and it also indicates a great weakness of uh, accounting. If you internally generate intangibles like R&D, its expense, it disappears, for it, it doesn't uh, show on the balance sheet. But if you acquire patents, if Pfizer were to acquire the vaccine patents from another company, it would be on the balance sheet. Since they develop them internally, it's not on the balance sheet. So it has terrible incentives on their managers in terms of acquisition versus internal development. And of course, the distinction doesn't make any sense. I talked to the Financial Accounting Standards Board, that's the rulemaking body in the United States uh, years ago, about this difference. And they told me, ah, you know, if you acquire, it's an arm's length transaction. So I told them, you know, 60-70% of R&D is salaries to scientists. This is not an arm's length transaction. Do you pay your scientists less than the market rate? Of course, this is arm's length. These are different payments, different people in this case. What's the difference? Still, there is a, a difference and it's big and it interferes with valuations of companies, valuation. Dr. Lev, when you're talking about the balance sheet, I know you mention the fact that there are these irrelevant assets that sit on the balance sheet and the, the assets that are missing are these strategic assets. I know you go on to discuss that the strategic assets are really the assets that give sustained economic value to a company. Could you maybe 
discuss for our listeners? How do you define these strategic assets? The strategic assets are those assets that create value. So if I have an office building, this is not a strategic asset because all my competitors have office buildings. If I have laboratory equipment, I'm sure that all my competitors will also have the -the state-of-the-art laboratory equipment. So if your competitors have these assets, you cannot create value from them. Strategic assets are assets that are unique to the company and that your competitors cannot mimic them quickly. If I want to be a Google tomorrow, even if I have money, it will take me probably 25 years to develop something which is similar to their search engine. So something which is unique and cannot be mimicked, copied by investors quickly is a strategic asset. And those are the assets that create value. The way you've described those strategic assets, I know Jonathan Haskell, who wrote the book Capitalism Without Capital, he was one of our podcast guests and and he focused on those those areas of, you know, they've got to be valuable, they're rare and they're really hard to imitate. When you think about that achieving that sustained competitive advantage, and I think as as an economist, I I totally understand that that's how a company is going to grow in value. How do you feel that patents fit in as strategic assets and and how do you kind of maintain that competitive advantage with patents? Patents are major strategic assets. Several years ago, in a very important TV uh, program in the United States, 60 Minutes, Amazon was interviewed and he said, "I'm I'm going now to tell you a great secret. We are developing now drones for delivery to customers, and he, he elaborated about drones. So after the program, I really wanted to know whether he's just talking or they are really investing in drones for delivery. So I went to the patents, and particularly to those early patent disclosures that are disclosed 18 months after applications, And indeed, I saw a large number of patents, Amazon patents and Amazon's employee patents on drones, delivery of drones and and, uh, things like this. So I got a pretty good idea that Jeff Bezos was talking about something that they are actually working on rather than some kind of a dream for the future. So patents, incredibly powerful tools. And reliable. This is not accounting information. This is facts. That's what I I like about patents. And reliable about the technological capabilities of companies. Of course, I need to mention one of the main measures, which is uh, forward citations to patents, uh, citations in subsequent patents to the company's patents, which I showed many years ago that this is a very good predictor of uh, success of companies. So uh, I like patents. We at Cypher love patents. So, But we also love the insight trapped within patents. They're the largest library of scientific information in the world. They document the history of the world's invention. So as a starting point, they're a very rich source of information. And we can't agree with you enough, Dr. Lev, that they also have the compelling advantage of being fact as opposed to being some approximation. One of the things which I was particularly struck as a lawyer 
is that your book didn't just theorize. It also gave hard, tangible ways of moving beyond this slightly empty bucket called an account. And it developed uh, resources and consequence report. It actually gave a series of case studies about what one would look like, how you would put it together, what levers might need to be played with in order to make that possible. And when Frankie and I were preparing for this discussion, we couldn't help but think that in ESG and sustainability, without regulation, all companies put forward that information largely voluntarily. Do you think that it's going to be a voluntary sort of initiative, or do you think that regulation is going to help us get greater transparency? ESG is very problematic. And as it stands now, uh, ESG reports by companies, whether they are mandatory, like in many European countries, or more voluntary, like in the United States, are close to useless. They are essentially PR reports. And the reason why they are useless is that for information to be useful for decision makers, it has to have three attributes. The first attribute is reliable measurement. So if you think about sales of companies, they can be reliably measured. There is no problem uh, with this, unless you cheat, of course. But if you don't cheat, sales can be reliably measured. Contribution of a company to a community cannot be reliably measured. So if, for example, a company finances uh, a football stadium, which is quite frequent in the United States, it's impossible to separate the advertisement part of it because the name of the company is hugely in front of this and the contribution part of it. So difference, how much is it really contribution and how much it is advertising. So reliable measurement is one. The second is what we call, economists call, after-fact verification. For information to be of high quality, the receiver should be able to verify the information six months later, 12 months later. So if a CEO tells me that the return on equity of the company will be 15% next year, this can be verified by the end of next year, they look what is the return on equity. Carbon neutrality, as stated, for example, I read that India, they will be carbon neutral in 2070. None of the people in Glasgow will be alive in 2070. I mean, in Glasgow meeting today, Glasgow people will be alive in 2070, but not those that meet today. So after the fact, variability forces managers to be honest. The knowledge, it can, the information can be checked later by the receiver. The third and last attribute of good information is comparability, that you'll measure it the same way across companies. So earnings, for example, are comparable. They measure the same way by practically all company carbon footprint is not comparably measured. So as it stands, ESG reports today have none of my three attributes of good information. You're not uh, a great fan of regulation. 
but at least guidelines for good measurement, guidelines that companies will be able to uh, follow and be uh, comparable will be very useful. As it stands now, even good guidelines are missing. Dr. Lev, I think that's fascinating when you look at even when there's the option to do something voluntarily, that there's still not the information that investors require on the ESG side and their transparency. So I'd like to ask you, when we look to the future, what do you think needs to happen to drive that transparency in terms of company value? And do we need to look at regulation or more mandatory measures to make sure that the elements that you discuss around the strategic resources and consequences report actually are a regular feature for investors? There should be a drastic change in financial reports of uh, companies. One element of this change, a very important element, is to finally recognize that intangible assets, the assets that create value, physical assets, most of them are not really, as we talked about it before, not really strategic assets. So you have to recognize them as assets, meaning they will not be subtracted from income, but they will appear on the balance sheet. People sometimes object to this by saying intangibles are hard to value. I don't ask for valuation. I ask for the investment in these assets to be recognized. How much did you pay for the development of this patent, for example? Similar to this of how much did you pay when you bought the patent? The second element of this drastic change in financial report is start providing relevant information. There is absolutely no data required to be disclosed on the patents. How many patent applications, patent grants, patent abandonments, patents that you really didn't renew in this case, And what are the royalties from patent licensing, which for some companies, it's a a major income. So these are are the elements of uh, new uh, reporting, but uh, I don't see it uh, coming soon. And that's such a shame. Our last Cypher Vision was with David Kapos, now a partner at Cravath, but formerly the head of the USPTO. And he was talking about transparency. You won't even believe what the podcast was talking about, transparency around patent ownership. We're in 2021, and it's still not possible to go and get accurate information about who owns a patent because there isn't mandatory recordal of that foundational fact. So you can see why some financial people think that intellectual property doesn't always behave like an asset class. But I totally agree with you. It is an asset and the community needs to go and treat it more like that and not as just some line in a cost item or a bucket of goodwill. I now have the pleasure of asking you to see if we can summarize this long conversation into a cipher vision, a key takeaway. What would that be, Dr. Love? My takeaway is for corporate managers, for investors, for academics, do what you are supposed to do the best way you can and no more than that. So don't delve into side issues, into political issues, into other issues. Focus on what you are supposed to do. This led me my entire life, probably with some modest measure of success, 
And uh, I think it will also benefit lots of other people if they'll focus without diversions. It's an amazing privilege for us on Cypher Vision to have you with us, Dr. Lev. I was going to suggest that you were the guru of uh, intangibles without even knowing that someone had already given you that title before. The idea that reports and accounts are the foundational information for investors and yet seem so empty of the fundamental information that they need is a travesty. When we look at patents, they're public information and yet the information is not made public. Companies, as you say, have the ability to do the right thing. They don't need to be regulated. They can be encouraged. And I think your life's work, your books, your papers, the encouragement you give to all of us, I don't think your book should just be on the Forbes list as essential reading for CFOs. It should be the essential reading for all business managers, not just because it talks about intangibles, because it says it's the duty of a company to disclose what's important. Thank you very much, Dr. Love. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into the CypherVision podcast series. Please continue the conversation on social using hashtag CypherVision and share your thoughts about today's episode, The End of Accounting. <laughs>